Hi, this is Craig Robinson from Ways to Win. And support for this podcast comes from Invesco QQQ, the official ETF of the NCAA. Invesco QQQ is proud to sponsor this episode and even prouder to provide access to innovation for the last 25 years. Basketball has had innovations over the years, too. We're seeing the game played in new ways every day. Learn more at Invesco.com slash QQQ. Let's rethink possibility. Invesco Distributors, Inc. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. From the glow of St. Paul's number one, welcome to another edition of Cabin Country. Give us the time and we'll take you out of the traffic and away from the levee. Let's find the place where the loons call out among the moonlit waves, where the wind sighs among the Norway pines. Pull up a dock chair, have a sip of your coffee, and get a line in the water. This is Cabin Country. Now here's Bjorn Lloydstead, and I'm Fudd Klugman with another Woodland Escape. Well, I'm Bjorn Lloydstad. And I'm Fudd Klugman. We'd like to welcome you here to tonight's Cabin Country, or perhaps I should say this late afternoon's Cabin Country. We are on the annual autumn trip up to the Gull River. That's right, late September. And it's got a nice, cool, crisp, well, maybe a little dampness in the air. You know, it's a little bit. Quite a rainy year this year, and we're in between rainstorms, I think. And I think we're even uh, due for warm weather again, but... Right. Looks like it's looks like it's on the horizon. Some gray skies over the pine trees and aspens. We're sitting uh, fireside here, as is usually the case, and uh, enjoying some red oak as it burns. And got a boat passing enjoy by. Enjoy the sound of some late afternoon fishermen coming by. Fisherman, excuse me. It's like a sixteen-foot lund, possibly. Heading up river. Heading up river at the. Tiller of a 25 horse. Why not? Absolutely. But you were saying, Fudd, you saying, set it up this, this summer, this earlier this summer. You got in contact. Yes, with uh, a diver, because I've heard about the Cuyuna mine pits that were filled in after the mines closed with, with water, and they remain a handful of, of some of the deepest lakes in Minnesota. And... Uh, you can find some Minnesota Diving School videos uh, of some divers that go down and, and videotape the things they see, and it's pretty fascinating. And Bjorn and I, I think, have shared that uh, neither of us are inclined to want to not jump into a deep... Right on my list at this point. <laughs> uh, the idea of a three to 500-foot deep lake... Good Lord. A bit frightening, but... Uh, a lot of people do... And uh, I was just fascinated by watching these videos, so I thought, well, I'm going to get a hold of somebody over there at the Minnesota School of Diving 
and uh, got a hold with the owner. His name is Todd Matthews, and uh, this is like early summer, and he said, well, things are pretty busy, but maybe the end of the summer we can get together and make it happen. And here we are. Get the get the background story on what it's like to dive these deep and apparently crystal clear lakes. The, yeah. the clarity is amazing, and, and you can see that on the videos, obviously, the YouTube videos. But it's it was a lot of fun to just talk to the leader of a lot of these trips and someone who is adept not only at taking people like yourself and myself who have never done this and might even be a little reticent the idea right. strapping on an oxygen tank putting a, a breather in our mouth and going down into the water and he made it sound like he would be a, a pretty good teacher on how to overcome those concerns and at the same time learn how to uh, get comfortable you know in the underwater world and and he talked about his favorite places to dive, but how these Cuyuna Range lakes are such great places to do diving. Um, as 30, 60 feet deep, it's it's still amazingly clear and a fascinating piece of not only Minnesota history, but just some great outdoors exercise as well. Between our two different interviews, we talked with Todd, and we also talked... With Amy Swenson. Amy Swenson, yes. She um, moved to the area from St. Paul in 1990. She, as a fascinated with history, has become quite adept right. at uh, the area history and um, is on the, the Cuyuna Lakes Chamber of Commerce there. And so we had a time to talk with her at her backyard greenhouse spot. She does a business there. Our history here is um, kind of complicated, I would say. I mean... It, it was so dormant for so long. Um, when I first moved here in 1990, it was just literally some trails and some dirt roads that kids had made with four-wheelers, etc. Right. Um, but I used to walk my dog out there, and there's literally sidewalks and old building foundations that you can see and walk right through. Right. And yeah. so that was very interesting to me to see that and, and to um, be walking alongside these 300-foot hills that were actually man-made right. and, and, and you're not going to build a house out there so that was always the shocking pits. but yeah in the pits yeah and then those lakes that were formed because of that which are right. also 300 feet deep <laughs> beautiful to walk along but a little a little dangerous but the yeah. the history of it they, they closed in 1967 i believe okay. and um um since then the town has kind of gone through its ups and downs with business coming and going and so to see this revival of the park system and taking advantage of that beauty that was sort of man-made, but right, now yeah. looks like an absolute natural beauty, is um, it's just exciting. It's it's really good to see that people are taking advantage of that, and it's it's what people want. So things like that attract. Well, a gorgeous part of the state, so yeah, the mountain bike brigades are yeah, oh is, yeah, this is heaven. I mean, yes, it is. Yes, it is gets. pristine. So, right. Um, those are some of the words we hear um, throughout the chamber. Is um, they like the, that it's a challenging course. It's a it's a pristine area. It's quiet. It's beautiful. There's always something around the next corner to see. Right. Do you know how long like the, the the filling up of these lakes with water? How long that process took? Do you have any idea? It was fairly quick. It was fairly quick once they hit uh, spring or something. They filled right up. Right. Yeah. I I could get that information for you, but um, it was it wasn't like just kind of took forever i think it was within like weeks or maybe months that it filled them up they were they were pretty pretty powerful 
Springs. I think in a video I saw, that somebody had mentioned that they turned the pumps off, so they must yes, have pumped yeah. the water yeah. out. It's almost like a sump pump system yeah, they would keep yep. the, the yep. mines free of yep. water. They, yep, they actually and then once they shut them off, yeah. Then, well, okay. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Let's turn these into, yep. into yeah. lakes, water water sites, you know, things yeah. to do. That's cool. I, yeah, like I was saying, coming back here in the 70s as a tourist kid, it was mm-hmm. like the excitement mm-hmm. was finding a big piece of cast-off slag yeah, yeah. from the iron pits and bringing it home to yeah. White Bear, you know, yeah, St. Yeah. Paul. And, yeah, yeah. and uh, there wasn't much here, and now it's just mm-hmm. this booming community. So that's really, really, really fun to see and exciting. Yeah. Good restaurants and our oh, yeah. favorite yeah. coffee spot full of bicyclists. Oh, and, yeah, exactly, you know? exactly. There's there's a there's a wave of energy that's come with that, with right. the history that they've preserved throughout there. If you bike throughout there, you can see where the old cables that had the that had the machinery that would right. haul up and down those hills, um, they're right across the bike trails. So right. And they go right down the, you know, you can kayak right out on Portsmouth right. and see parts of buildings that have actually came down the, the hill right. and big chunks of concrete that they just left but then nature has taken over and has built up this beautiful area with many trees and i just wonder if they stocked those lakes with fish or they do they they, do. they have to because yeah. I mean, it was a great mine. trout fishing nothing, right great trout fishing out there um and while you're out there kayaking you can see the schools of fish so right, bass it's and, so clear and um trout and i i don't know the other all the species that they do but we have actually um, fished Portsmouth uh-huh. in it in the springtime when they're when they're going, it's right. like a highway in there. You just you really? know you wait in line to get your boat on there, and it's not that big. It's right. not that big of a lake. Right. It's a tiny. It's a tiny um, area, but you just go up and down like a highway, get your limit, and get off. Nice. Wow. Mm-hmm. I was going to say too, as a city kid, you know, yeah. were you someone back in the day living in St. Paul who enjoyed fishing, enjoyed the outdoors? We and- camped, you know, as our, our family camped, you know, right. just about every weekend. That's, you know, what mom and dad could afford for a vacation for us kids oh, was I, I hear that. we camped, yeah. we camped all the time. So um, we would come to the Brainerd Lakes area once, right. you know, once a summer or whatever on, right. on the tour of camping trips mom and dad had p- planned. But um, but so yeah, I've always loved the outdoors. The idea of moving up here didn't sound quite as daunting to no. It was beautiful, and there was you know to me, uh, you know, we would four wheel, we would camp, we would go you know hang out when we first moved here, right? And so to see this you know mountain biking thing, and so I you know I've jumped onto everything that they have. Right. I, I have a fat tire bike in the garage. I've got I was a road ask, bike in the garage. You mountain biker yourself <laughs> I've got a, now. Yep, yeah. I've got a paddle board. I've got I've got a kayak. I've got several kayaks now. So nice. we, yeah, we've. We've embraced all of the, the, the we're, you know, and I love it that we're taking advantage of the beauty that, you know, nature yeah. took over and said, I'm taking this back. It's, and it's been great that people are seeing that as a uh, thing that they can use as a recreation thing and that we can use as a community right. for building our community and our businesses. And that was like, you said you moved here in 1990 from St. Paul. Is that mm-hmm. kind of when the... When things really started picking up or was it after that? Or? Oh, it was way after that, yeah. Oh. Yeah, I would say... Um, you know, it's been a kind of a struggling town. They had some other industries, such as like a snowmobile sure. company that up and left in the 70s. And, okay. you know, so they've, you know, in the 67, the mines closed. And then, you know, and then they kind of had a little revival. And then the snowmobile snow thing. Snow machine industry Yep, off. snow machine. And then they were gone. And um, so so the the town is a survivor. You know, they're, they're, this, these people are survivors. They're, they're going to, they're going to make it go. Um, and so it took long after that. And, and it wasn't until probably about 10 years ago that it really started to, um, get some, get some momentum going. And then in the last five, seven years, it's really certainly seems to be on its feet now. Yeah. 
Yeah, yeah, we're happy about I've it. I've never seen so many bicycles on the I know, vehicle I know. coming through any town. Yeah, exactly, exactly. If I'm coming up from St. Paul and I see a bike right. in front of me on a car, I know where they're going. Pretty good idea. I'm going to follow them all the way up. Right. <laughs> oh, that's funny. I, I will ask, as, as the, the goof that's big into the paranormal stuff. Yeah, right? yeah. So is there a fair number of people who you get asked about, you know, they're coming up here to find milford mine or any of this um, kind of thing is anybody i think it's kind of a hidden gem still yeah. i really do i yeah. mean but when i have family or friends i'm like you gotta go out there you go it's eerie out. It, you know my my kids and i and my husband and we've been out there several times you know it's it's just up the road from us and right. and we still go out there and you still there's always something new to wow. see and yeah. you're just like wow this something happened here and there's still a spirit there clearly definitely. a memorial and you, yeah, you get the feeling definitely sadness, the, the county the did a great job on that wow yeah <laughs> Yeah, it's yeah. something else. Yes, but. it is. It is. So. All right. Very cool. Well, thank you so much yeah. for Get your you time. Back to work, I guess. Yeah, no, no problem. But uh, yeah, we, we enjoyed our day today. Absolutely. Good, good. Come up again, of course. Without yes, please do. Next time I'll have please my bike. Do. Yeah, yeah. Touch All base right. with us if thank you have you any so questions. Much. Yeah. All right. <laughs> Appreciate Thanks, it. Well, it's time for a word from our sponsors, but don't go too far. You're not going to want to miss our visit with Todd Matthews and its fascinating scuba diving adventures in the great depths of the Cuyuna Mine Lakes. Mitt's Coffee, the purveyors of such fine morning blends as Laughing Goose and Morning Dove, now offer a caffeine-free blend that can be an all-day drink for those who, perish the thought, cannot have or would rather not drink coffee. Oastie. The delicious coffee substitute made from wholesome roasted white oak acorns and natural Minnesota-grown chicory root. Osti offers a warming, soothing flavor of all that is Minnesota natural and Minnesota good. The rounded, nutty flavor of golden roasted white oak acorns blended with the wonders of roasted 10,000 Lakes chicory root. Mitt's coffee blenders create the perfect mix of warm and wonderful. A drink that reminds one of the morning coffee ritual but also a drink with its own personality and flavor. Osti, a morning drink that will start your day without the kick of caffeine or the strong mouthfeel of a dark roast. Get your day started with a warm, soothing cup of Osti. The roast with the most from coast to coast. Osti, brought to you by Mitt's Coffee, purveyors of fine coffees across the greater cabin country area. Mitt's Coffee, the brew that flew with the great Northwest. Now back to Bjorn Lloydstead and Fudd Klugman in Cabin Country. And you were saying, Bjorn, growing up and passing through the old mining towns. Wasn't much right, to see yeah, at the time. You know, I mean, we would go to the cabin for extended periods of time in the summer when my dad would take time off and uh, in the 70s. You know, if, if it was heavy weather like we might be experiencing here soon, um, possible, you know, we would be looking for things to do and, and kind of day trips to just find some some entertainment, I guess, for the kid here. And I recall a trip to Crosby Ironton to see the open pits, and uh, there wasn't active mining going on anymore, but you could drive in and they had overlooks and things you could look at and, and see, and it they were small towns, and they, they seemed to be, back in the 70s, kind of trying to re-identify themselves and, and stay afloat with, with the biggest industry having left. 
And uh, I just, I, re- I recall thinking it as a kid how cool it was to be able to just kind of crawl around in these huge slag piles and find these big piece, pieces of rock that look very, very iron heavy. You know, it's red. This is cool. And, it's, mm-hmm. you know, you walked out of there, your shoes were bright red, your hands were bright red. Mm-hmm. Rainy day kind of stuff. But it was, they were just small towns. There wasn't a lot going on and businesses closing and, and, and just kind of small town Minnesota, well, you know. What what would stay open stayed open, but when I first heard of these these mine pits that people talked about, I, I thought you know they were just kind of small, you know, like maybe a five acre lake, sure. and it was just a straight deep down pool or something. But no, they 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 look like lakes, and they're surrounded with trees, and there are the the, the kind of rocky cliffs around parts of them. So right now it's quite beautiful, and it's become quite the mecca of mountain biking. It's a mountain bike industry up here. It's Trails surrounding all these lakes have become mountain bike courses, and, uh, tying into the. I believe it's called the Cayuno bike paths. I mean, it's 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 you know, along a lot of the highways, there's bike lanes. I mean, if you're a, a cyclist, it's a beautiful place to be, and there aren't overpasses and all this craziness, and there is minimal traffic, but bicyclists everywhere, and and especially those mountain bike trails that surround these lakes. And some of these right. lakes, like you said, are huge. I mean, they look like they were supposed yeah. to be there, you know. And uh, lo and behold, I, I, we even tried to kind of scramble down towards the shore of one of these lakes. And uh, I think it was Monoman, one of the Monoman mm-hmm. lakes that was a, a mining pit. And, and Todd even pointed out that Monoman 1, I think he said, goes down. It's the deepest of the lakes. It's over 500 feet deep. Right. And uh, I realized I'm walking on a path that's, I look closer it's everything's pretty glossed over, like lots of usage, mm-hmm. the rocks, the roots, all these kinds of things. And I realized these are bike paths I'm looking at, bike tire trails. Sure. And I realized I'm I'm currently walking on the Galloping Goose bike trail. <laughs> I'm not supposed to be here. Watch uh, out! We turned around and came back out, and immediately a fat tire bike came rolling out. And I smiled and nodded and kept rolling. And I thought, boy, I, 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 I yeah, these are busy. You know, <laughs> watch more bicyclists coming up and checking the maps and. Every vehicle we pass seems to have a bike rack on the back. There are a handful of videos, well, several videos on YouTube that you can find. And I think there's one that's like Dive Cuyuna Lakes or something like that, uploaded by the Minnesota School of Diving. And it's very cool because they'll show an old black and white photo from, you know, like at the 1930s or 40s when it was in just this big open pit. And then they'll dissolve into what it looks like today into some live video. And it's just quite stunning to go, oh my, holy cows, that's, that's just amazing. So it's just fascinating. And so to, to meet up with a diver who's been down into the depths, uh, and Todd was amazingly eloquent and informative. Yeah, my name is Todd Matthews. Um, I am the owner of the Minnesota School of Diving. We've got actually two corporations here. One deals with sport diving. It's called Minnesota School of Diving. The other one is Underwater Commercial Divers, where we train commercial divers. Um, okay. So I'm also the vice president of that. Cool. Yeah. And so how long have you been diving yourself? I've personally been diving since I was like five. My father um, started the business back in 1959, which was seven years before I was born. Wow. But so uh, he had been into the industry for quite a while. And so he would, um, I, I have childhood memories of swimming around by the dock at the cabin with 
uh, scuba gear on when I was like five or six. So, Very cool. But you can't officially be certified until you have a certain age at that year. That When I was growing up, it was 12. Now it's 10, so I've been officially certified since I was 12. So, okay. And I'm 53 now. And so where did you grow up then? In I grew up in Brainerd, yeah. Oh, okay. We had a cabin in out cab- on Gull Lake. Though, oh, so. okay. In cabin country. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. So you've probably dived all over the, the world. Like, uh, yeah. what are some of your favorite spots outside of uh, uh, Minnesota? Yeah, one of the I think one of my favorite spots would be Truck Lagoon out in Micronesia, mm-hmm. which is located uh, by air about I don't know a couple hours southeast of Guam. Right. And Truck Lagoon is also called Chuk now. They brought back the native term mm-hmm. for its mm-hmm. um, for the for the country or the island group, but it's where there was a huge Japanese naval base during World War II. Wow. And uh, in 1944, uh, Nimitz came along with all of our carrier groups out there, and they did this system where they would uh, certain islands they would invade for whatever reason, certain islands they would just decimate with bombing and and sink ships and stuff, and then right. pass them on. And then they these these little these well, this one was a huge naval base. It just kind of withered on the vine because it could it couldn't get supplied anymore. Right. So they all starved, things like that. But anyway, with Truck Lagoon, the unique thing is that we did come in and we didn't invade the island, which I think is smart because it would have been hard to do that. It's really rugged and everything. But they sank over sixty Japanese ships and two to three hundred airplanes were shot down. And so you can dive on those ships now. And what's unique about them is that they still have a lot of the uh, army material. So like on some of the ships, there's still army tanks strapped on them. We go in some of the holds of some of these ships, there's still uh, zero Japanese fighters, the right. zero, and right. in parts or incomplete. And, um, I first went there in 99. The last trip we went was 2014, and it is changing a bit. Things are really starting to deteriorate. Now, right. But, right. But yeah, that's one of my favorite spots. Cause I was also a history major at the U, so history yeah. intrigues me. Um, but yeah, we love anything on the West Pacific. It's phenomenal. We do Palau frequently. And, um, we usually, if we're going to go all the way to Truck Lagoon, which is 21 hours of flight time, doesn't yeah. include uh, you know airport time. Right. But if you're going to go that far, you might as well do both Truck Lagoon and Palau, which are Absolutely. two of the real hot spots out there. We, we may have been sitting in some of the same classrooms at the U. I, mm-hmm. I'm your same age and yeah. same major from the same university. Yeah, there so you go. I, I'm a history teacher. Okay. And that was a favorite book I would use about World War II. Hey, look at this geographic compendium, you know, uh-huh. Ghosts of the Pacific. And right. it's all diving, yeah. you know, in Chuk and, and uh, the Solomons and, yep. and going through the slots. It's like the fleet is sitting on the bottom. It truly <laughs> the is. Trucks yeah. in the Iron Bottom Sound the, and yeah, the Solomons. The, yeah. the holds of these ships and divers looking at you and bubbles going up. And yeah, it's it's really so intriguing. Cool. Yeah, it's, it's a neat, neat area. Yeah. Tell us on the first time you uh, went to the Cuyuna Lakes, the Mine Pit Lakes. Right. Well, when I was growing up in, in Brainerd here in the 80s, I went off to school in 85, 84. Um, at that time, they were still pretty actively mining over there, so mm-hmm. uh, you could not really get in there. It was ironic that when I first started diving in the Mine Pits was when I was actually living in the Twin Cities, going to school down there. I worked okay. for a dive store in Maplewood. Yep. And we had a group of friends that, you know, down in the cities, everything kind of shuts down on the weekends here in Brainerd. We're used to having things really busy on weekends. Right. So that store was closed Saturday, Sundays. We would head up here and just kind of explore around. And so when I lived in the cities, when I first started diving, so up here in 86, 87, that's when the mining had, in a lot of places, it had stopped. And the mining companies had kind of gated off certain areas, so you really couldn't right. have access. But there are certain areas that we knew where we could get into. So sure. we just started exploring. So it was 86-ish, 85 when we first started doing anything okay. up there. Okay, yeah. So, yeah. And then um, 
I moved back up to Brainerd in 1990 and then started, you know, working at the shops here again. So, um, but yeah, at that point, then the mining companies were really kind of out of it. No one was really patrolling it. So we started hitting it and we started actually going out there doing our, our uh, store sponsored fun dives out there. And I got so tired after trying to write down so many times maps out there Mm because nothing was mapped. So we created our own map system too that kind of showed what was available, where the different dive sites were and things like that. No, that was 99 when we came up with that map finally. But yeah, we were pretty active. I've been active out there since 85, 86. Right now, the Cuyuna Range area is mad with uh, mountain bikers. But right. What about diving? How does that, how's the scene changed over the last? It's, um, it's kind of, a, in my mind, it's kind of re- remained somewhat consistent. You know, okay. um, and there hasn't been this huge balloom of divers with the in, in association, like with the mountain bikers or something. Right. Not, but, um, it stayed pretty consistent. You know, people, divers are always looking for, especially in the Midwest, are looking for a spot where you've got decent visibility, so you can actually see something. Mm-hmm. And depending on where you're from in the state, there, you know, you get up in northern Minnesota, there's certain natural lakes that actually have pretty good visibility, but anything down south with any kind of agriculture issues, then you get a lot of algae bloom, things like that, which really Work. yeah causes problems. But, um, but yeah, so they're always looking for good visibility. As soon as the rumors hit that no one's patrolling out in the mine pits anymore, divers would have heard that, and they started uh, right. arriving at that point. So, right. so really, f- from our fun dives, you know, starting back in the, I would guess we probably started those in the early 90s, I haven't seen much drop off or well, there was a point where she got we on weeknight we had so many people showing up on a Wednesday night we'd have fifty people show up to do a dive. It's impossible for us to keep track of that many. When you we have relatively good visibility, but maybe even if at best you got fifty, sixty feet, you can't take keep track of that many people. So we had to actually double up our fun dives. We in July and August we do uh, one week is Wednesday, and then Saturday. We do every Saturday from May through October. But it would be Wednesday, Saturday, then it was Tuesday, Thursday, Saturday. So there was a period maybe 20 years ago where things really got hopping. But they stayed, stayed consistent from that point on. Well, it's, it's uh, fascinating, all the stuff that's down there, and uh, plenty of videos that you can see on YouTube. Mm-hmm. And, now, imagine a lot of those skeletons you see are just, were they planted there? Who puts those things there? <laughs> yeah, it's, it's divers, you know, divers. Right. Anything that's associated with being topside, if you see it underwater as a diver, you think it's kind of neat. It's kind of right. intriguing. So I, I know of a lot of different things where people have, there's actually a, a gentleman that's down from southern Minnesota. I forget his name now, but he was an electrician, and he had access to these big um, electrical boxes or whatever. Mm-hmm. So he fashioned up a box, actually cut it apart where it looked kind of like a coffin shape, kind of right. a diamond-shaped right. thing. Yeah. And then he planted that. There's a couple mining pipes. They used to, when the mines were being mined, obviously groundwater wanted to flow back into these big holes right. in the ground, so they had to pump the water out constantly to keep it relatively dry. So these pipes they left in there, when everything, they shut the pumps off, the water rose back up, there were these pipes. Well, he didn't want somebody just taking off with his really cool skeleton coffin thing. Right. So he actually bolted it and chained it to a couple of these pipes. But you can go down there, you open up this box, and there'll be a skeleton in there with whatever this is. <laughs> and then divers just like, another skeleton was stuck to a power pole, I think by the same guy. Right. Uh, wired into there, and he's called Sparky was his name. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's, there's another group that built a, a diver's uh, pirate bar, so they had a pirate bartender. Uh, a skeleton thing behind yeah. the bar down there. So yeah, there's, there's a lot of interesting things that people put down. I think for other divers to kind of chuckle at as their ideas or something right. along, that type of thing. So, yeah. 
And of course, there's the uh, Jason Voorhees yes. <laughs> placed down there by another diver. Yeah. Curtis Lahr, I think is his name. Uh, Curtis Lahr is the one that filmed it. There was another diver that's very active with us um, that actually planted it. I don't know oh, if I okay. should be using names or not. <laughs> but yeah, yeah I there's. Uh, we got permission. Yeah. Um, but he planted it. But yeah, Curtis is a very avid uh, videographer and he does a fantastic job. So he was right. one of the first ones down there to film it. Or the first one, I should say, to market it. I filmed it pretty early. Impressive. Too. Uh, replica yeah say that much yeah it is it's, yeah uh, i can imagine the gentleman that sank it put a lot of time and energy in yeah. it. it's 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 built in such a manner it's very three-dimensional yes he's got these um deer i don't know what taxidermy deer eyes right. whatever they're in there right. that look very realistic behind oh, yeah. that mask but um there was quite a few problems when they were trying to sink it because it was built in such a manner that it's three-dimensional so it's very buoyant and kept hard time getting it down and kept wanting to pop up yeah and that would be a little bit leery if you didn't know it was there and suddenly yeah. Jason pops out yeah. of the water. Here comes the local <laughs> law, law enforcement. There's a drowning victim. Yeah, out somebody and, popped yeah. up. And, yeah. and he's carrying a machete, by the way, right, yeah. wearing a hockey mask. Hockey mask. Uh, but yeah, they chained him. They finally had to actually chain him down there, but now he's like going to a cement block or something, It's right? to a, another one of those pumping pipes. Okay. Yeah. Oh, wow. Yeah. So those are the pipes that pump the water out yeah. of those pits when they were trying to keep them dry. Wow. Right. Can you describe any moments in the Cuyuna Lakes that were actually kind of freaky to you? Any any experiences that were scary? I can't honestly think of any. I'm sure if I thought about it long enough, I could think of it. I can't. I mean, I've been diving for a long time, so nothing really shocks right. me um, right. down there. Yeah. Uh, I can't think of a specific situation. Right. So uh, well, Beyond me being nervous for some students that I have or something yeah. like that, just oh, as yeah. being the motherly guy that I am. Or, yeah, right. Right. But, but no underwater, you know, no snappers that got close to you. That uh, yeah, it's kind of funny because I've 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 dived with thousands of sharks all over the world, whatever else. I've never felt fear of those. I think the only thing that actually scares me underwater is a snapper because yeah. they are oh, really. And I've, I've never had them come that close. But yeah, it's they're they're ancient looking and yeah. prehistoric. <laughs> Welcome and, to the Jurassic period. Exactly. Yeah, it's like, good Lord. <laughs> yeah. What about uh, all these objects that you find? I mean, there's a history, of course, of people dumping trucks and, mm-hmm. and cars and of course They're some of those airplanes. are in the yeah planes i think are in some of the, uh, have you ever discovered or seen something that uh, oh i sh- should report this or this yeah. should be brought up or maybe even a body you know that kind of stuff any yeah. have you found any interesting <laughs> things that you can talk about just happening upon them there's been a few times where yeah we've we've uh, jimmy hoffa not, not jimmy that at <laughs> no, all no. i didn't recognize him okay as being, yeah. at this point him, yeah, yeah. Uh, no, there's a, there's a lot of objects that have been sunk that, yeah, we might happen upon not realizing they were there. There's actually a, a brand new, um, not a new truck, but a new truck into the water here within the last couple of weeks in one of the mines that we had no idea was there. Wow. So, okay. yeah, occasionally you're swimming along and suddenly, oh, that's that's weird. But, yes, we Never do. saw that before. We do report it. Most of my staff here, most of my dive masters and instructors are also members of the Crowing County Dive Rescue Squad. So sure. we change hats and say, okay, let's go down and you know, get the VIN number, get the ser- or the uh, license plate, and we'll report right. it. And, and then depending on whether it gets pulled up or not, it's dependent, I think, on insurance reasons, things like that. But if they can track down the owner, um, there are, I think, as far as I understand it, DNR has some rules in Minnesota that it's considered – Littering if you drop right. a vehicle in, and so I think the fine is two hundred dollars per day okay. until you get it removed. Wow! Wow! If they can track down, I'm the sure owner. they're worried about fuel in the tanks. And exactly, oil and yeah. you're polluting. Yeah, a, a pristine, Absolutely. body water. So, yeah. so yes, that's the, a those you do bump into occasionally. I've never seen a body per se, not mm-hmm. but as our rescue squad stuff, we we do different sure. things there. But 
yeah, in the mine pits, we've never just happened upon that. But yeah, there's new vehicles now and then. And right. Different things, but I mean, I think one of the most intriguing things about the mines is if you can find some of the the relics from the actual mining days. Right. Oh, yeah. Like to me, I think some of the most intriguing things are which I would never be an advocate of ever entering into. But there's, in my head, and again, I'm I'm not sure exactly the history, but I think most of the mines here started as shaft mines. Right. Um, and then I believe I would just perceive that after a point at which they realize, okay, there's a lot of ore here, it'd be more efficient to just cut a big hole in the ground. Right. Uh, as these open pits uh, opened up, as I'm swimming around, I mean, I'd love to see some photographs of these that you could correlate to, okay, well, that's exactly here, which is really hard to do. I've tried to do that. But anyway, swimming along, and you'll see a mine shaft that's suddenly there that doesn't make any sense. There's one that is cut in just kind of uh, parallel to the edge of this this wall, and it wouldn't make sense to do that when you could cut straight in. Right. You know, just perpendicular to the edge of the wall. So that just, to me, it's like these are old shafts that... Uh, if you go into them, it's not like they're cut into rock. They're cut into a shale-type consistency. Yeah. So your exhaust bubbles as a diver can dislodge the ceiling and then obviously you get stuff falling down. But really intriguing to look at from the outside. If you look inside, it's kind of peering in there. You'll still see some of the timber framework trying to keep everything intact. Um, so there's those, those kinds of things, I think, are intriguing when you can really kind of draw back to what was the purpose of this hole. Uh, there's another shaft that I've never been down into. Somebody did claim that they did it. This one's a vertical one, so you could be potentially safer, although it's still dangerous. I'd never do it, but you could drop just straight down. Your exhaust bubbles would be coming up and not necessarily causing any collapsing because you've really still got just water above you all the way to the surface. But somebody has dropped down, and there's a series of uh, horizontal shafts. is called a drift. And right. So they dropped down a vertical shaft, and there was a series of drifts that reached off uh, into the distance as they went down. And in one of them, he said he dropped down, I think, 40, 50 feet, looked into one of the drifts, and there was still like a picnic table in there from oh, wow. when, like, that's where the miners would sit and have their lunch yeah, or lunch, something right. like that. Wow. So those kinds of things still really intrigue me. Or or something. Yeah. 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 Wow. Um, there's still a lot of the roadways that were down there. They're not improved or anything, but you can still follow the roads. So there's some nice contours to follow. And, um, if you ever do look at a picture, there's one that's pretty recognizable from Portsmouth Mine, uh, where there is a large structure, which actually is still existing up top. It's a, it's a smaller version of it, but there was a conveyor belt that actually went down to the bottom of the pit, and I think Portsmouth is 385 feet or something. So they ran a conveyor down to the bottom, and the conveyor, actually, there was a ridge of ground, whatever, that the conveyor, they actually built, put a tunnel through that, so it came off the shoreline, dropped down through this ridge, and then emerged again. If you can see a picture of Portsmouth being uh, pumped out and see the whole bottom of it, you'll see this conveyor belt. Well, that shaft that they put in through this little ridge to allow this conveyor belt to go through is still there. And that actually is a concrete culvert. It's about eight feet in diameter. That would be truly the only safe spot that you could enter if anybody wanted to do any kind of like pseudo cave training or things like that. Sure, sure. You could as a diver enter in that because it is a concrete culvert. Right, it's not going to collapse. Yeah, but it's big enough where two people can swim side by side through that thing and stuff. It's good size. But yeah, to me, just personally, I think from the mining, uh, seeing some of the mining... um, the structures of what they did and there's still mining uh, like building foundations there's like little power shacks I think there's still there's a couple buildings that I remember being uh, intact and now that the ceiling is kind of collapsed to kind of pancake down but mm-hmm. those kinds of things are intriguing to me if you kind of place imagining it being uh, back in the mining days it's kind right. of fun to do that but to me all these things that divers plant yeah they're kind of fun but it's kind of like the Disney World version of it. <laughs> yeah. it's all kind of fake so. 
like what's the deepest you've ever gone to ask sort of a kindergartner question? How deep have you gone? Well, yeah, in the mine pits, <laughs> it's difficult in the mine pits because there are a series of thermoclines, which you know most bodies of water have. Um, like right now, the first thermocline that you read, and that thermocline is a difference in the water temperature. Right. And basically, that's going to create a difference in density of the water, too. So uh, divers are always trying to find the more clear water. Right now, that thermocline is sitting about 30 feet. Right now, because we're at the end of September, it's, it's about 62 degrees down to 30 feet. Then between 30 and 60 feet, uh, it'll be in the low 50s for temps. Below 60 feet, it's going to be always upper 30s all year round, no matter what. Mm. Um, so uh, depth does become a factor too like uh, when you get down sometimes below into that third layer uh, there can be a lot of sediment that's sitting right on that denser water and you can have an area that's just total blackout where you can't wow. see a thing you can be watching your buddy in the distance where you got good visibility now they'll drop through this black layer and they'll still have 200 feet of water below them but they drop through this black layer and you they just totally disappear all you see is their bubbles coming up through the black wow. layer so you can work through that in some cases. There are certain mines where you can get down to two, 250 and not have that. But that does kind of, and I wish I could peg when and when that's, when and where that's going to happen. It's really kind of hard to tell. We have certain ideas that certain pits are going to have that. But yeah, here personally, I've been down about 200 feet in these pits, and uh, but that was good conditions. I know a lot of divers that have done, you know, they've gone through that that black layer, and it's it's black where you can't you shine a light into your mask and you can't see it even. It's so it's right at the edge of the mask. Wow, wow. But if you drop below that layer, if you do have a light on, it can be very clear. It can be 50, 60 feet of visibility. It's just dark. It's like a night dive. Right. Wow. But if you get through it, the light will penetrate a long distance. You know, so it's suspended sediment in the water. Yeah, it's it's strange. Interesting. Um, wow. So yeah, I mean, you can the, the deepest mine out here is 530 feet deep, so it's way deep, but uh, most of them are around 200 or less. Uh, Portsmouth is one of the deepest. Monoman 1 is actually the deepest one. Mm-hmm. Uh, but yeah, so most people, though, when they're diving out there, if you go deep, there's a lot of drawbacks to it. If this is kind of a kindergarten question, as you're asking, mm-hmm. is at depth, you're going to not have a whole lot of time unless you do a real elaborate dive plan with different mixed gases. And, right. and uh, there's just a lot of support that you need for that. So a lot of people just like to poke around and have fun. If you stay 30 to 60 feet, you could probably get two hours of time on a tank and, and not necessarily get into decompression, depending on what your profile is. But um, and the, and you're warmer too. Right. Yeah. Well, dropping yeah. into the 30 degrees 30 is, is not water. you know yeah. some of us have electric underwear for our dry suits and whatnot, and that's great. But most people don't, and so right. you know they'll drop down. They'll they'll maybe go look at like in one of the pits. There's this Ford Ranger pickup that sits in 115. You can go see that. We're all from Minnesota. We're used to being cold. We know that we will survive. But mm-hmm. so we're down there and we'll we'll suck it up for five ten minutes. Look at the truck come back up above 60 and it's like oh that's a lot more comfortable then you come back above 30 we're now in the summertime that 30 foot layer a little bit above that we got 75 degree water temps it's like coming in the bathroom right after being down right a lot of people will do that they'll go sacrifice get cold for the while to see something and they'll come back up and spend you know the half of the last part of their dive just kind of hanging in warm water warm up enjoy the scenery We'll hear more from Todd Matthews in just a moment. This is a test of the Cabin Country broadcast system. The broadcasters of your area in voluntary cooperation with the fishing, hunting, and cabin construction authorities have developed this system to keep you informed in the event of an outdoors emergency. If this had been an actual emergency, 
an early start to the smelt run on the Knife River, record numbers of pheasant flushes near French Lake, or a sail on the triple-glazed windows and pine paneling at Cross Lake Lumber. The attention signal you just heard would have been followed by official information, news, or instructions. This station, WCCN, serves the greater Cabin Country area. This concludes the test of the Cabin Country broadcast system. Sitting out here in this blind for hours, drinking mom's wee coffee, eating sandwich cookies. I need something to get this taste out of my mouth. I know what you mean. This is rough. I give up a clear shot at a record gander for a breath mint or a piece of gum. What? The The Goosey Goosey Fruit fruit Galoot! galoot. Fret not, goose hunters. I'm the Goosey Fruit Galoot, and I have just what you need to fight that not-so-fresh goose-blind breath. Goosey Fruit. The not-so-sweet fruit gum with that oh-so-subtle hint of smoked goose breast. Bad coffee breath? Old chaw residue? Ah. Last night's garlic chicken still hanging with you on the morning hunt? Goosey fruit will take it away and leave the satisfying aftertaste of a holiday goose dinner. And goosey fruit is there for you at all of your favorite hunting and outdoor stores, as well as most of your more popular gas stations. Goosey fruit is available in five-stick packs, 30-piece multi-packs, or plastic travel dispensers of the popular new Goosey Fruit Gum Cubes. Sticks or cubes, Goosey Fruit is right there for you. Thanks, Galoot. We'll freshen our blind breath with with Goosey Goosey Fruit. Fruit. We're glad to see you're still with us. Let's get back to Bjorn Fudd in Cabin Country. One of the technical thing I observed while watching the videos is the that you do the frog kick a lot. You know, right? We we think about the the you know the flutter kick when we're swimming in shallow mm-hmm. water, but why why do you do the frog kick and and also hold your hands in this almost prayerful looking one hand <laughs> over the other? It's oh, very peaceful good. looking, it's, it's but a yeah. religious experience. The the flutter kick it, it's an efficient kick. It does work well, but you do expend a lot of energy. And and honestly, a lot of times the flutter is what we train as instructors. We'll train students. Okay, this is the best way to move around is do a flutter kick, a constant kicking behind you. Newer divers are always trying to master their buoyancy control, and one of the things they have a hard time doing is is actually doing that. And so they're compensating for lack of really good buoyancy control by kicking constantly. And so the flutter kick, they can do that. Once a diver gets to a certain ability with his buoyancy control, really at any time during the dive, you should be able to stop all motion and just hover. That's a kind of really good indication that you're in the right realm of what you need. So when you get to that point and you trust that, we don't feel like, oh, suddenly I'm going to start ascending to the surface. I better dump everything. That's what newer divers are always fearing is is shooting to the surface that way. So once you get that buoyancy control, then you'll you'll notice a lot of the experienced divers get themselves stretched a little bit, make make themselves a lot more streamlined and in the water that's a huge factor and all they really end up doing is doing a frog kick i do kind of a frog kick or a sculling kick mm-hmm. which is really hard to describe it's even hard to actually watch i think but it's very efficient there's no there's no return kick it's all a power kick right and with a frog another advantage to the frog kick is that if you are swimming relatively close to the bottom a flutter kick directs a lot of water straight down and it hits this silt and sediment on the bottom and mucks everything up so all the people swimming behind you are going to have terrible visibility and you will be the butt of all jokes when you get back to the surface (laughs) saying well jokes yeah you were plowing up the bottom the whole time 
So you change. Doing a, a frog kick or any kind of sculling directs the water directly behind you and does not muck up the bottom as well. Now the praying mantis type position you've got, yeah. you see a lot of people in, very relaxing. It also helps you with your trim. If That's primarily dry suit divers. You see a lot of them doing that. Okay. And there's, it's just it's, it's a comfortable position to be in. It's also making you very streamlined. But another reason why is people that are using dry suits, um, they're trying to stay warm too. You would think you, you are a lot warmer in a dry suit than in a wetsuit. But um, if you do that, um, a lot of times they're kind of swimming in, in kind of an elongated V shape where when you look at their body, they're doing this frog kick where their legs uh, from the knees are kind of pointed up a little bit, mm-hmm. the, the, the calves or whatever are coming up. They're doing their frog kick. But the lowest part on that body of that diver is the knees, and they're kind of the, the chest is rising up slightly and then their elbows will be down low too but what they're trying to do is trap air into the areas where they want to stay warmest so i want my feet to be warm so they're going to be up elevated a little bit the air that's in the dry suit is going to seek those highest points so it's kind of trapped up there by the knees then my body is rising slightly in a v-shape so now i have a lot of air that's pooling around my chest and then my hands are going to get really cold. If I have them wrapped around down below, all the air that would be in my dry gloves is now going to flow on up. So mm. you'll see a lot of divers stick their hands over their head as they've gotten to a certain depth, let air leak into their gloves. Mm. And they'll kind of keep them trapped. And they'll keep the air trapped up in their gloves by just having their elbows at a low point. Okay. So now the knees are at a low point, the elbows are at a low point. I've got air trapped by my feet, which keeps my feet warmer. My hands are warm and my torso is warm. I'm sacrificing my elbows and my knees to get a little bit cold. But it's just really a very comfortable position, too. It also balances you out by having some of the buoyancy of the suit with your arms and your hands forward. Yeah. Okay. You've got most of the weight kind of located near your waist. And so by bringing your hands forward, you're also balancing that teeter-totter, so to speak. The weights are holding you down. The suit itself and where the air is in it is holding you up. So if you can get that balance, you can find this this perfect position where you're streamlined, you're warm, you're comfortable, and uh, you move through the water very efficiently. If you're moving through the water efficiently, then too, your air in your tank is going to last a lot longer, so your air consumption a lot less, which is another... I look at two things when I judge whether a diver is a good diver or not. I look at their buoyancy control and I look at their air consumption. That, to me, tells me who is a fantastic diver and who is not. It's not how deep they've been, how many gadgets they have strapped to their BC. It's those things. That's what I look at. It's buoyancy control and air consumption. Do you have any, I mean, the Cuyuna Lakes mm-hmm. are kind of known for the clarity. Yeah. Do you have any lakes around the state that you prefer? I mean, I'd see, they would all be kind of silty, I would think, and a lot of... Typical lakes you're talking? Yeah. Because I know, have like my, my White preference. Bear, Minnetonka. Yeah. I mean, is there a lake in particular where you say, well, that's about as good as we're going to get? There's really nothing, the honestly, south of here, I think, that's going to be any better mm-hmm. than anywhere here. But, right. Um, it really based on like I remember Square Lake was a very popular lake oh, near yeah. Stillwater for Absolutely. training. That's where I did yeah. my instructor I grew course up in, White Bear, right? in ninety-two. Yeah, yeah. Yep. it's always well known for being clear water. I don't know if it's if it's the uh, the yards around there, the the cabins and what they're doing to fertilize yards, mm-hmm. but it's nowhere near as clear as it used to be. I haven't sure. honestly been in it since ninety-two, but I've right. been hearing everybody that comes through that has done some training there says it's it's terrible visibility Good. now. Mm-hmm. And I think it's because of of um, the organic issues. Yes, yeah, the, exactly. So other lakes that would be clear, 
some of the things that you can think about, I guess, is that it's, it's, you've heard of zebra mussels, and they mm-hmm. are truly affecting visibility. Like Gull Lake, where we've had a family cabin forever, was always very green. Um, it's got a lot of zebra mussels, and so the water is getting a lot clearer than it used to be. Okay. If you want a pristine lake, whatever, there's some up north, uh, you know, up near Ely, whatever. Like Burnside. Burnside is a great Vermillion. lake for that. Right. But even with those standard natural lakes, they're not going to—I mean, we've got like Mangan Mine and, and Huntington Mine and the Cuyuna Mines. Mm-hmm. We've been seeing 60, 70 feet of visibility. You won't see that even in the best natural lake up north. Right. You will see maybe 100 feet of visibility— in Superior, like out by Isle Royal, mm-hmm. I've seen 100 feet of visibility one day, the next day, maybe 30 feet. Um, but it's primarily because that is so cold. It's mm. always 37 degrees mm. in Isle Royal. Um, and then you're on this island in the middle of nowhere with not a whole lot of you know stuff coming out the island. It's a very right. rocky island. But, right. but yeah, typical lakes, there's really nothing that comes close realistically to what the mine pits would have. Right. But it's changing with the zebra mussels for, for good and bad. Right. I remember diving in Lake, uh, Lake Erie probably 20 years ago. Yeah, almost 20 years ago. Diving, always, Lake Erie was always really well known as being very polluted. I mean, right. the river coming out of right. Cleveland, Cuyahoga, Cuyahoga, started on fire. And yes. <laughs> yes. Um, so we're, we were thinking, we did a trip in 2001, I think it was, where we hit all five Great Lakes in eight days. We had a Greyhound bus for a while and realized how expensive it is to maintain it. But we hit all five Great Lakes in eight days and did a wreck dive in each of them. Sure. We did one out in Lake Erie. And what was bizarre is we were the water wasn't very clear. It was maybe 10, 15 feet. It's a lot better than it used to be mm. back when, when Cleveland was on fire and whatnot. But, right. Um, we were driving on this, this dredge or this, this, it was like a barge, a workman's barge that was sunk in Lake Erie off Welland, where the Welland Canal went through. Okay. Diving on that, we're dropping down, and the visibility is terrible. And it's like, all right, somewhere down here at the end of this line, there's supposed to be a shipwreck. Dropping down, can't see a thing. Suddenly, it's as if you pop through this bubble of clear water. Hmm. You pop through, and suddenly you can see this dome. It's like you're inside the Metrodome, and you're seeing the edges. And out here, it's all murky. But surrounding this wreck, where all the zebra mussels were attached... Oh. They had filtered so much water. Apparently, there wasn't much water movement for a while there. There was a dome of pristine, crystal clear water surrounding this wreck. Anywhere, and you could like swim, poke your head right out through the murk, and now you're in the crappy stuff, and you come right. back in again. Wow. It's a really unique dome, but that was all zebra mussels Filter just feeders. clearing that one area. Right. There was hundreds and hundreds of thousands of them. Oh, of course. But it was so you're seeing better visibility. Obviously, there's, it's decimating all sorts of other things, and you're not really getting rid of the pollution. Mm-hmm. Once that zebra mussel dies, the pollution's still there. Right. So hmm. it's not like it's processing it, you know. But Erie is the, the surfable, you know, right? I, yeah. I guess, although I've got a buddy from Superior. Like, no, no, you can surf Lake Superior, too. Oh, yeah. All the great lakes can be surfed. Big, big waves. It's the winter. winter. <laughs> yeah, yeah, true. Oh, my goodness. Yeah. And that was a question I was going to ask. Um, cutting holes in the ice yeah do you, do you lead a under the we, ice dive kind of thing we, we do a class um we've done for years we do at least one if there's interest we'll do more than one but we do sure. one ice diving certification course every year um we were stupid way back when and we always did it in january sure when potentially topside it could be 30 40 below zero it creates a lot of issues yes yeah. you should learn how to deal with all that topside but there's a lot more logistics you'd have to have people have built these elaborate basic ice houses to do these things and mm-hmm. finally got smart is like the unique thing with ice diving is you're diving underneath the ice let's do it in March right 
the ice is still there. Top side, we might have 50 degrees. So now we do with the class always towards March, towards the end of the time period. We like to do it in the mine pits because then you're not having to be way out in the middle of the lake. You can really base most of your stuff from shore, but still put the divers in through the ice because the drop-off in the mine pits, depending on where you're at, drops off pretty quickly. Right. So you want to have some depth. Otherwise, the first diver that drops down will muck up the bottom as they hit the bottom, and then everybody's got bad visibility. So we do it in March, yes, we do that one class a year. Do people go out and just cut a hole and dive for giggles? Maybe once they'll do that, then they'll realize how much effort it takes to cut the hole, to do everything right, to set up radian lines with shovels, move the ice where you need to be. If you are doing it during cold temperatures, having the topside support with warmth and ice house, all that kind of stuff. Sure. It loses, to me at least, it, it lost its appeal very quickly. Way too much work for the yeah. fun you had. And I right. am I do it frequently to recover vehicles or potentially if there's issues with somebody, some victim from a, a drowning with a snowmobile or something like mm-hmm. that. Yes, we have to do that, and I'm, I'm more than willing to do that. But mm-hmm. just somebody coming, calling me, and I'm watching the Vikings at noon. Uh, you want to go do an ice dive? No way in hell. <laughs> no. <laughs> Not going to happen. No, I'm Not comfortable here in front of my fireplace. Yeah. So, But yeah, we do it, and... It's a really neat experience, Right. Uh, doing it once or twice, and if you get paid for it, it's a neat experience all the time. But um, yeah, it's just it's it's sometimes very clear water. Yeah. What's unique about it is the ice itself. It's kind of cool what your exhaust bubbles do with the ice. Yeah. The way they flow around it's, when you look up, it's almost like mercury. It's it's yeah. really kind of it's kind of fun chasing to, around the ice surface. Yeah, it's, it, one of the things we do too is you can jump in the ice uh, underneath the ice, swim off for a while, in, for a while, invert yourself by adding some air to your BC, get your feet up high. And then we rigged up a signal system where if I pull four times, it means get me out of here. So your tender up top will start pulling that rope. What you're basically doing is skiing underwater, <laughs> under the ice, you know, inverted. Wow. When you get to the hole, your feet will pop up. <laughs> so there's ways to amuse yourself. Very cool. That does kind of wear yeah. off quickly. Yeah. And especially as you get older, it's like I don't like getting cold anymore. So. Yeah. It doesn't sound, yeah. No. Warm sounds good. Right. right. Fireplace, a book, watching the Vikings or something would be fine on Sunday. For the uninitiated, there's a lot to consider. Do you have a lot of people that, for instance, maybe somebody listening right now will think, boy, this sounds kind of fun. I want to go diving in Cuyuna and see how deep it is. Well, mm-hmm. you have to take classes, yeah. and, and, and do you have a lot of people that come sort of disillusioned with not thinking all the work and prep and learning you have to do? Yeah. Or? Well, I think a lot of people have a, a basic understanding of, the yeah, you can't just jump in and do it. I, you know, I've had, the thing that I run into some trouble with is, like, you've got a very enthusiastic father that just took classes. He's really excited about it. His son's coming along. He's eight years old. You've got to be 10 minimum to take the class. Um, I've had them where they've said, well, let, yeah, let's just jump in. You can just breathe off my extra second stage, my, my, my extra mouthpiece. Just breathe off it. We'll stay shallow. You'll be fine. You know anything about diving, and that's why you need to take a class, is that if he understood it or remembered his training, it's the shallow water that's the most dangerous. Um, you've got the greatest change in pressure from the surface down just the first few feet. It's exponentially less change of pressure the deeper you go. Mm. So to mistakenly say, all right, well, I'm only taking them in four feet of water, biggest concern we have from diving is uh, overexpansion injuries of the lungs. If you think about somebody that's uninitiated, they're not comfortable with this. Natural reaction, if something's not quite right, is if, okay, you normally would be, oh boy, take a deep breath and then you escape. You want to get out of there. It's like, geez, let's get out of here. That is the worst thing you can possibly do. If you do that even in three, four feet of water, if somebody takes a deep breath of air, holds their breath and escapes, you can have severe lung damage. Mm -hmm. And that that is what we try to beat into your head during the classes. 
That's why it drives me nuts when a father would take a son saying, oh, we're shallow. You know better than that. Right. Mm -hmm. So, yes, there's a process that you need to take. You need to understand what does change with your body when it's under pressure, both what you're breathing, under the water pressure that we're dealing with, the airspace that are affected by that. You need to understand that, you know, why that works and why that happens so that you're not doing things like this. The potential, oh, I didn't know. It's like, we took the classes. That's right. beating your head 15 times. You'll hear that. Mm -hmm. um, so, yes, there's, there's a safe way to do it. And, you know, you might have heard, too, like there's a lot of people that have done this thing called a resort course down in the Caribbean. It's like, well, you can do a half hour of instruction. They'll let you go in the pool, jump around, swim around, and then we'll take you out into the actual open water and let you right. swim around. Um, we hear that. It sounds like a great idea. It's like, I'm down in the Caribbean. I should do that. It's great. And for maybe half, maybe 40% of the people that do it, they love it, and they come in, they want to take classes. 60% of the people think, Boy, that's the scariest thing I've ever done. I don't know if it's just that I didn't know enough or whatever, but uh, you know, I saw this thing bubbling where if you don't know what you're looking for, you might perceive this to be a huge issue where the local dive master, maybe not trusting him from Jamaica or whatever, what else? It's like, uh, he's probably okay thinking, yeah, everything's fine, I'm in control, but whether you realize, or if you perceive that there's a problem, even though there may not be one, without the background of the information and that education, it's going to be a problem to you. Whether it's real or not, it's per right. perceived, right. you're going to have that reaction. So 60% of the people that do these resort courses, that was nuts, this happened, that happened, I will never even consider it again. Right. So um, we've had, I mean, if you do it the right way, we had people that have actually, we, my father started this class, we haven't done it for a while now, but it was called Terrified of Water. He would take someone that couldn't even be anywhere near a dock or something in the summertime, right. totally deathly afraid of the water. It's usually because of something happened as a childhood, their kid brother held them underwater or whatever. Mm -hmm. But he would work through um, the problems these people would have by starting them you know, in a pool and eventually working them into being comfortable snorkeling. Mm -hmm. And then a lot of those people went on and actually became divers. So if you do things the right way, if you eliminate things that you perceive to be problems, you know, a lot of people think it's going to be claustrophobic underwater. Actually, when you put the equipment on and everything else, it's not that way. Right. Um, so if you do things the right way, then we can really make if, – if anybody has a desire to be underwater, we can make that happen if they do it the right way. Sure. We also do what's called the Discover Scuba, but it's not jumping into the ocean doing stuff. You're doing basically the same stuff but doing it in a pool. So you swim around for a while, get comfortable with the idea. It removes generally that idea that it's going to be claustrophobic or I'm not going to be comfortable under there. The wetsuit's going to be too tight. I won't be able to breathe and all this stuff. And all that goes away. And that's a small investment. I think we charge 35 bucks. We credit 25 of it back towards the class if you end up taking the full certification course. So there's ways to ease into it. You don't have to commit to doing the full-blown class. We'll start off with a Discover Scuba. Just try it in a pool, swimming around three feet of water. And get rid of a lot of these preconceived notions. Everything you've ever seen on the Discovery Channel, mm -hmm. you know, diving, if it was just, if everybody was talking about how easy diving was, it would be really boring TV. So <laughs> it's always going to be sensationalized. All the movies you've ever seen about diving, it's yeah. all sensationalized. Everything about sharks you've ever seen on Discovery Channel, it's just sensationalized. It's not real. Shark Week's not real? Not real. Oh, no. no. <laughs> how boring would it be if you say, you know, yeah, there's another shark, whatever. Oh. No. So, but that's kind of the reality of it. Right. But snappers are a different <laughs> Snappers, <story>. no. <laughs> snapper week. Different. Or a really snapper angry week would freak tiger muskie. Right. Yeah. Exactly. Man. So there's, you know, there's there's a right way to do it, and uh, you know, you any kind of a preconceived notions. What we're generally one of the things instructors I've always said this too is like instructors' job really is not you're, you're 95 percent a psychologist, yeah, breaking mm -hmm. through people's concerns or issues or whatever else. 
And uh, then 5% of it is just showing them how to do it right. Right. You know, that's about it. Right. So you're doing a lot of breaking down what is really the conflict here, what's causing the problem. So you build a, a relationship with an instructor and start to work with them where they can at least trust you for a little bit. You can mm-hmm. break through some things. Like if you get to the point of just trust me for a minute on this, just try it. If all else fails, you're only in three feet of water. That's where you're learning your skills. Stand up. If right. all mm-hmm. else fails. But trust me otherwise. Right. Get them through. It's like, oh, yeah. And they do it now two, three times. All right, good. I don't know why I was concerned about that. Let's move it on to the next skill. So. Right. It's incredible. Like I say, I'm a, we're uninitiated, you know. It's like, right. oh, deep water. But it sounds like you could really get over those fears. Ease your way into yeah. it and do it the right way. Yeah. No, it sounds cool. You, you just build on what, what you get comfortable with and move on to the next thing. And, right. and then you start to trust the equipment you're using. You start to trust the processes of what mm-hmm. we taught you. Mm-hmm. And uh, then it just becomes it becomes something that I've changed. I've seen change so many people's lives just right. for the better. The neatest thing I think with diving too, from what I've seen from organizing these you know, excursions and things, is where it breaks down all the social barriers. I remember just from like 25, 30 years ago, a good friend of mine was a business, a big executive at Pillsbury. Sure. Older guy. I think he's now 85. He's, I don't think he's diving anymore. He just quit recently, but he started diving when he was like 60 or something. But it took him a lot of time and energy to get through this stuff, but he's out on a fun dive. He's worth millions of dollars. And I remember buddying him up with another diver that I could trust this this person, this, his name, let's call him Joe. I could trust him with a newer diver. You know, we'll always take them out the first couple of times afterwards as instructors or dive masters. But once I know that they're of a certain degree of comfort, I'll pass them on to somebody else that we maybe worked with through the through the system. So mm-hmm. I've got this kid, 15-year-old kid that works at McDonald's, diving with this multimillionaire executive from Pillsbury. <laughs> These two have nothing in common. One ultra-conservative business guy, another hippie kid. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I buddied them together. And what was so, and, I've, and I expected this to happen, is like, it didn't matter what they they experienced this dive together and now these things that they saw whether it's a snapping turtle a fish a whatever they saw a mine shaft they had this bond built because right. of a shared experience that these two guys never would have said anything right. to each other walking down the street or any in a mm-hmm. lot of other contexts it would have been reasons to why is this punk kid doing that or why is this old geezer doing this right no, they're both underwater, they're breathing, they see something cool, they come up, they do the high-five thing afterwards. It's like, that's one of the neatest things that I've experienced and why I've enjoyed my life and being in this position is, right. is seeing those kind of interactions that you don't commonly see. You build these huge bonds, right. you know, with these people that might not normally ever get that opportunity to break through those barriers, which is really kind of cool. Very cool. Uh, very, that is very yeah. cool. Well, well, thank you. Yeah, yeah so much, very welcome. Todd. Appreciate it. Appreciate yeah. your time. Interesting that this trip, we not as much just kind of noodling time and throwing out the white whale and hoping the leaderless line doesn't get snapped by a northern pike, but we did some road work. Did some road work. Busted out the the digital recorder, and we got two really great interviews. uh, We did. Ended the evening with with a fire and the idea of chili dogs again. Maybe before the craziness comes in, we might have to restoke the fire here a little bit, too. I think so. Get a little low. Get a little low, there. but restacked, restacked the wall of wood and um, took in some Sherlock Holmes and the typical, typical trip. The typical Bjorn and Fudd autumn trip. You bet. Take take work and work around the house and right. all take those chores and kind of put them on hold for 72 hours. And 
and get off the, the, the great beaten North trail. I, I did want to mention how odd it's been to me that for coming up here for nearly 40 years up into the area, how it's always been a beeline to our the, either my cousin's shack or the cabin here, my dad's, and always having a great time. There's always stuff to do, but I, just, I never, you know, went beyond that. Uh, right. Up at the Cuyuna, you know, and see what else is out there. But uh, there's always enough fun. But it's fun now discovering all the outlying. How much more there is to cabin country than perhaps we country. we assume. Right. Right. So, so much out there. I think another layer on me is, is due here. Time for my camo fleece. You're Peter. cooling off. All right. Stoke well, up the fire. Get the chili dogs stoke going. Stoke the fire and get the grate in the in the ground and get those dogs a roasting. And uh, look forward to you joining us back here again in Cabin Country. The next time around, we'll probably be back in the Oakdale Studios. The Oakdale Studios. But uh, for now, with the cool wind blowing off the river and the clouds rolling in, the sky darkening, wood beckoning the fire... Bring it, bring it back to life, Fud. Bjorn, get off your chair. <laughs> There's dogs to roast, so we'll welcome you back right. next time. But from the beautiful Gull River, we bid you adieu. Join us next time on Cabin Country. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Normally, being a little extra can be a bit much. But when it comes to healthcare, it pays to be extra. And United Healthcare makes it easy with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they supplement your primary plan, helping you manage out-of-pocket costs without the usual requirements and restrictions like deductibles and enrollment periods. So when it comes to covering your medical bills, you can feel good about being a little extra. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you.